Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 1. Boy, we've seen a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, uh, being able to have the baby dedications. And one thing I failed to mention is Jim and Lois Taylor is that they're the maternal grandparents of of, uh, Brian and Jordan Lee, who are up here and what an exciting time uh, for them as well. And we, 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 we weep with Barb Reeves in the loss of her husband that we, many of us know Bill. And, and, so, and we rejoice with those graduating. We rejoice with the fathers. Happy Father's Day to the fathers. And, and uh, what, a, what a, a great thing to be a part of the body of Christ, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, pray for the sick. Um, and uh, yeah, so... When Christopher uh, Columbus first uh, landed in the Caribbean in 1492, he named the inhabitants Indians because he thought that he had reached what the Europeans referred to as the Indies, which was China and Japan and India. Um, In fact, he was nowhere close uh, to South Asia or East Asia. Uh, He was in unexplored and uncharted territory. He assumed the world was much smaller than it really is. Uh, Dane Ortland, the author and pastor, shares that story, and then he asks these questions. Have we made a similar mistake with regard to Jesus? Are there vast tracts of who he is, according to biblical revelation, that are unexplored? Have we unintentionally reduced him to manageable, predictable proportions? Have we been looking at a a junior varsity, decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making, thinking we're looking at the real Jesus? Have we snorkeled in the shallows thinking that we've now hit the bottom of the Pacific? Revelation, remember, it's singular, the revelation to John, uh, was written by the Apostle John at the end of the first century from the island of Patmos, a 10-mile by 6-mile rocky island in the Aegean Sea about 70 miles off the coast of modern Turkey, about as far as one of our missionaries, uh, Brandon and Rachel Buser, are off the coast of Papua New Guinea. They're 80 miles off the coast of Papua New Guinea, the BM people. This book is written during a time of persecution. It was great persecution going on. And these first four chapters that this series is going to be focusing on really are like medicine for our soul in that they challenge us to remain faithful to God, to not compromise our faith, and to be patient through any persecution or suffering that we may go through. So let's read our passage, uh, first, uh, Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that our hours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word to us this morning. Well, at the top of your outline, it says this, as we focus in on on this last part of chapter one of Revelation, uh, Jesus appears in magnificent and brilliant glory to support and remind his church that he knows their needs and they don't need to fear persecution or even death. How can they know this? By looking at Jesus' death and resurrection and by worshiping him who is now exalted in heaven and is forever present with his people. So the first thing we see, this is number one on your outline, is that following Jesus involves suffering and service. You know, it seems probable that John went to Patmos for being a member of an illegal religious sect. Uh, and, And so the conditions that he were in were probably pretty harsh. Uh, For John, following Jesus meant suffering. He knew that. And this is the devotion that the gospel demands, is that that's a part of the Christian life, suffering. Uh, It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote these lines from a Nazi prison. Listen carefully to what Bonhoeffer said. And what a great prayer for us today. May God, in his mercy, lead us through these times. But above all, may he lead us to himself. Wow, what a great prayer. That we would be led through these difficult times, but more than that, that we would be led to God, that we would know him more. That's what Revelation is all about. It's turning our eyes on Jesus. We said this last week, that Revelation is like a worship manual for us. 
In verse 9, John says what is normal is that we suffer for his kingdom. That's on your outline. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Yeah, think of who John is. John could have pointed out things in his resume that no one else could do. Uh, But he didn't. Instead, he describes himself in ways that emphasize the common experience that he shared with these fellow believers in suffering. As his, it says in the text, as, as your brother and companion. And companion points to the idea of, of fellowship. We're in this together. You know, we think of fellowship as maybe donuts and coffee out on the patio. And don't get me wrong, that is a wonderful time of fellowship to be able to connect with each other. But John thought of fellowship as this patience through suffering and light coming into the kingdom. My favorite definition of fellowship, I know you've heard this before from me, but it's two or more fellows in the same ship. We we like it when we know someone else is with us and we're not all alone in whatever it is we're going through. And John knew that we suffer as a family, that he knew he wasn't alone. Paul and Peter were dead. His brother James was dead. But he was encouraged that he was writing to these churches and he says, I'm with you in this. And Jesus is with us in the midst of these struggles. And it's a privilege to suffer for him. It's not painless. God will use it to build into our lives what James said is endurance so that we might be mature, lacking nothing. That's God's goal for you, that you would be mature, lacking nothing, that you would be like Jesus. John was exiled to the island of Patmos because, as it says in verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, we're pretty much removed from persecution here in this country. But you know that our, the body of Christ that we are a part of, there's a lot of suffering in the world. I, I tried to get the latest statistics, and, and here's what I found. Every day, every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. That's what's going on in our body around the world. Every day, 12 other Christians are unjustly arrested. Every day. And another five are abducted. And this report comes from the World Watch List that that annually accounts for uh, the the top 50 countries where Christians are most persecuted in the world. And they list the, uh, the, the, the nations, those top 50 nations represent 309 million Christians living in places with very high or extremely high levels of persecution. And that's, again, 309 million Christians up from 260 last year. So the numbers are growing. Christianity is growing in spite of the persecution. And the president of, the, of this group says that you might think that this is all about oppression, but the list is, the, the reality is that is about re- resilience. The numbers of God's people, he says, who are suffering should mean the church is dying and that Christians are keeping quiet and losing their faith and turning away from one another. But that is not what's happening. 
Instead, in living color, in living color we see God's faithfulness to them and to us. Man, what a privilege to be a part of this church. And we need to remember to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in the world. It's one of the reasons we pray through all the countries of the world. And then we see in verses 10 and 11 that that Jesus is all about us serving his church. That's the next thing on your outline in verses 10 and 11. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. John says he was in the spirit uh, on the Lord's day, probably Sunday, that was the day of the resurrection, to worship and pray. And maybe he was on his knees. Maybe he was reading the Psalms. Maybe he was praying. But something supernatural got a hold of him and basically ripped him out of the sphere of this earth and transported him into a different spiritual realm. And immediately upon finding himself in the spirit, John hears behind him a clear and penetrating voice calling to his beloved disciple John like the sound of a trumpet, it says. Think of how crisp and clear a trumpet is. That's the way Jesus' voice was when John heard him. And why the seven churches? Well, you know that's the number of perfection in the Bible. And I think it's the seven churches because they represent all the various types of churches around the world that have existed in history and exist now. This is written to us. And then number two on your outline, it focuses on Jesus and how he inspires awe. Jesus inspires awe when we look to him, and he should. And we have in these next five verses a portrait of a shepherd king that may be the the most brilliant picture in all of scripture of Jesus. In verse 12, John turns and sees the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them, we, we sense Jesus' presence. And this is on your outline in verse 12. We sense Jesus' presence. And what John saw would encourage him. And there's, a, there's an Old Testament precedent, precedent here. Remember that more than any other New Testament book, there's more citations and more allusions to the Old Testament by far than the next book, which is Hebrews. Uh, <clears throat> there's Moses who built a seven-branch lampstand. You've got this on your, on your outline. And Zechariah, who had a vision of a seven-branch golden lampstand that represented the eyes of the Lord, which reigns throughout the earth. So the lampstands held small oil lamps that gave light and represented God's light going out into the world. Uh, and this is the same assignment given to us, right? Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And the one who's in the midst of the lampstands is the Lord Jesus. His title, Son of Man, goes back to Daniel. This was Jesus' favorite term for himself, used 81 times in the Gospels. So Jesus is watching. Jesus is, is working in his church Even though we might be faithless, he remains faithful to us. That should always encourage us. And then starting in verse 13, we marvel at him. We can do nothing else but marvel at him. 
And so here we see Jesus as, as prophet and priest and king. The one with power over the nations, who shows dominion and, and glory. John Piper, in his book, Look at Jesus, says this. The one with power over the nations, with everlasting dominion and glory. He is the great high priest that has put away the sins of people once and for all. He is as aged and wise and mature as the great white-crowned ancient of days. Yet with eyes that are aflame with the fire of youth and energy and hope and, and exhilaration. And for his unstoppable plan for you and for the church and for the world. That's the God we serve. This is Jesus. And Piper continues, gaze upon Jesus and let his royal power and his priestly forgiveness and ancient wisdom and his fiery hope fill you with confidence afresh. That in, in the past is, has, has not been vain and that in the future will be the appointed brushstroke on the canvas of your life and on the canvas of history till the great mosaic of God's work is done. That's the God we serve. That's Jesus, God the Son. And Piper concludes with this, so do not fear time because Jesus is the first and the last. And do not fear life, it is he who is alive in us forevermore. And do not fear dying. He holds the keys to, to the grave and death. And verse 13 talks about the lampstands representing the church. And we are the church. And among the lampstands is someone like a son of man. So the lampstands are the churches. And, 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 and that, that represents us. We're the church. He's talking about the seven churches of Revelation. But the idea here is that this church, Claremont Emmanuel Baptist Church, is one of these churches. We, we are, and the Lord is right in the midst of us. And we're a light because he's the one that is, is the light who's among us. And remember what we said earlier, these churches are going through suffering. John is an old man now. He's probably 90 when he writes this. And the older you get, the more suffering you see, the more suffering you know about because your friends have suffered. And, and you suffer. And so here's John in exile on the island, and he knows that the churches he's ministering to are going through suffering. It's why he was exiled, and he's thankful to be alive and not dead. You know what was happening in the first century? The way Christians were being persecuted? It wasn't pretty. Some Christians were being impaled on a pole and covered with pitch, with tar, and lit to be a fire at night as people walked in and out of Rome. Dozens and dozens, even hundreds, were crucified at the same time so that in Rome, the Romans, when they left or came into Rome on vacation, would see all these Christians suffering. You know about some being thrown to lions and in the midst of these beaten and battered people is Jesus. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. 
You know, persecution in the Bible is often referred to as the furnace. Boy, I don't know about you, but that makes me think of Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these believers, would not fall down and worship the emperor as God. Same thing as the Christians in, in the first century. They were, and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a furnace. And the furnace, as you know, the story was so hot that even the people throwing him in the furnace got consumed. And Nebuchadnezzar the king looks in the furnace and maybe he's thinking he's going to see a, a hand reaching out or something, but he sees three men walking in the fire. And then he sees a fourth and he says, this is like a, a son of God with them. How did four people get in there? I thought we threw three in there. And this is God making good on his promise in Isaiah 43 that is still for us today. Listen to this. Fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Fear not, for you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be there. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you, for I am the Lord. That's God's promise to you. And when Jesus says in verse 18, I have the keys to death in Hades, what does he mean? He means, I went into the fire for you. That's what he means. Our God doesn't just look at the furnace of, of suffering and that we're going through, maybe that you're going through in your life in whatever level, in whatever way, and feel bad for us. That's not who God is. Our God came into the world in Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and he went all the way to the cross, and on the cross, he was plunged into the ultimate furnace for you. And you've got this on your outline. Jesus is literally walking in the furnace with us when we go through persecutions and when we go through suffering. Do you believe that Jesus took the ultimate furnace for you? That's how you become a Christian. You believe that. You live with that truth. So he was someone like a son of man. And the next thing it says in, in verse 13, he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. That's the clothing of an Old Testament priest. As our high priest, what does he do? He ever lives, it says in Hebrews 7, to make intercession for us, to pray for us, because he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And a golden sash around his chest, that was a sash worn by the priests. In verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Again, God the Father is described in, in, in Daniel 7 as the ancient of days, it says. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. In other words, John is describing Jesus in the same terms that are used to describe God in the Old Testament. And what he's saying loud and clear is that Jesus Christ is God the Son. You know, in our culture, we admire people who look young for their age. But in Bible times, it was not like that at all. Proverbs 16 says, a white head is a crown of glory. 
And once God does away with sin and establishes the new heavens and the new earth, there will be nothing negative about aging. White hair, or, or if, if you have it, uh, is a great thing. And it will only be associated with wisdom. It will only be associated with insight. It will only be associated with maturity. And this is what John saw in Jesus. He was like the ancient of days, like his father, with all the wisdom of eternity. And not weak or weary in the least. Like we associate with, with white hair today. And the next thing, the way Jesus is described by John, is that his eyes were like blazing fire. He, he can see the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Nothing is hidden from him. And then in verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. In other words, he's strong and solid and stable. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His voice was like, as one commentator said, and I love this, of awesome power and pervasive authority. It echoes forth his majesty and sovereignty like the waves that continually crash against the rocks of Patmos. Wow. It's our God. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. His servants belong to him. We belong to him. We're protected by him. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. The sword of, in Jesus' mouth symbolizes the power and the force of his message. It's like Paul in, in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. And the sword is the word of God that, that convicts us and leads us to repentance. At the same time that it convicts us, it heals us. It comforts us. And then it says in verse 10 that his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliant. It speaks of his holiness, his majesty. And all these descriptions point to Jesus as God. We're all, we're all taught when we're young, never to stare into the sun. If you do, you'll never see another thing the rest of your life because it will burn your retinas out. Over and over in the Old Testament, <clears throat> it says if you look into the face of God, you're gonna die. You can't look into the face of God. And yet here's Jesus, and John is looking right into his face. And he sees the shining, the glory of God, and John is not killed. Even though he's stunned, it says he falls down in verse 17 as though dead. But he's doing this while he's staring at Jesus' face. And it says that Jesus lays his right hand on John, and with gentle authority, he says to, to John and to us, literally, stop being afraid. Fear not. You know how many fear nots there are in the Bible? Someone counted them and said there are 365. One for every day of the year. Fear not. Psalm 16 says that in his presence is fullness of joy. In other words, all that you value, all that you seek in all of your life pursuits, and all the beauty you've seen in any place of all different types of true beauty, you will see in the face of God. Everything else dims when you see his face. 
when you're in his presence. Everything you've ever wanted is in God because he is the alpha and the omega. He is A to Z. He's the beginning and the end. To just be in God's presence, to, to love his presence, to worship in his presence, to adore him, that is what our soul longs for like a dying fish longs for water. It's life itself. There's no substitute for it. One commentator put it like this. John saw Jesus as he truly is, an awesome God, a powerful God, a majestic God, a God worthy of our worship, a God worthy of our service, a God worthy of all we can give him, a God whose presence gives us assurance, a God who is omniscient and all-knowing, a God who is continually present with us, an awesome God. He is sufficient for all you need. And then thirdly, number three on your outline, we're encouraged by the power of Jesus. In our sinfulness, like John, Jesus' holiness overwhelms. This is the Lord. This is our warrior lamb. This is the King Jesus. And the first thing we see in verse 17 is that he lives forever. It's on your outline. He lives forever. You know, as, as the Roman government uh, stepped up the persecution of Christians, John at some point must have wondered, is the church going to make it? This persecution is intense. People are dying daily for their faith. And Jesus appears and reassures John that he and fellow believers have access to God and access to God's strength through the trials. The trials come. They will come. But we have God standing with us through the trials, through the fire, through the flood. And if you're facing hard times and you're facing challenges now, on whatever level those might be for you, remember that the truth of 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You don't have to fear anything. You don't have to fear Satan. You don't have to fear demons because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And the key word there is the word though. He felt, he didn't fall dead. He felt like he was dying. On some level, again, John was terrified and I'm sure I would have been. And yet in the midst of the apostles' heart-stopping terror, if you will, the Son of God stoops down and he, he reaches out his nail-pierced hands and he comforts his old friend John. I don't think there's a stronger, this has to be just a, a, a passage about the absolute supremacy and the deity of Christ in this passage. Remember, Revelation is more rooted in the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. And they're, here they're describing Jesus in the same way that the Lord God is described in Daniel 7 or Ezekiel, 40, or Ezekiel 43 or Isaiah 11. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Then he says in Isaiah 44, and, and the set of God, I am the first and the last. He says it again in Isaiah 48. And it's also said of Jesus right here. And it's said again of Jesus in Revelation 22. He is God. He is our absolute Lord, the Lord of creation in history. He starts and he finishes. 
So how can we apply this to our lives? You've got this on your outline. The better our understanding of who Jesus really is, the quicker we will respond in submission and obedience. John arguably had one of the deepest relationships with Jesus. He considered himself the one the disciple Jesus loved the most. Jesus says, hey, on the, on the cross, what, is he, what responsibility does he give to John? Take care of my mother. You know the trust had to be overwhelming when he did that. And so in light of that, in light of what we read earlier from John Piper, here's some questions that we need to ask. Do I know the awesome and do I adore the awesome and glorious power of Jesus portrayed here in God's word? Or have I adopted a culturally appropriate mild-mannered, user-friendly Jesus of my own imagination. How should John's portrayal of Jesus affect my attitude in prayer? How about my attitude in worship? My attitude in obedience? Does my life reflect a response to Jesus of Revelation 117 that I, I fall as though I'm dead? in front of God and his holiness? Or have maybe I become too flippant about the way I approach my master, my Lord? Jesus, God the Son. It says in verse 18, I am the living one, declaring I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, Jesus says. He died on the cross once. Perfect atonement has happened. And then you've got this as well on your outline. He has authority over death. And I hold the key to death in Hades. Believers, we don't need to fear that. We don't need to fear death. It's like I was talking to Barb Reeves uh, Friday morning after Bill, her husband, passed away the night before. And, And she said, man, I know he's in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's there. I know that. She took joy and comfort in that. As believers, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the grave because Christ holds the keys to both. All we have to do is turn from repentance from our sin, in repentance from our sin, and turn to him in faith. And when we attempt to control our lives and live by what we want to do, that's the road paved to hell. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7 that narrow is the way to heaven. And then in verse 19, you've got this on your outline. He has a plan. Write what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And he helps us, verse 20, understand his word. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. And he explains his word so we can understand it. You know, many times, but not every time, the symbols in Revelation and throughout the Bible are explained. We need to listen carefully. And John's profound insight into the person of Christ led him, as it should lead us, to complete submission to Jesus. And so, when you open the word, do you open it with humility? Do you open it with a willingness to be obedient? That's the attitude God wants us to have. Whatever God's word says, we do because, and and you know what's going to happen? We will be led to the deeper truths. You want to grow in your faith? 
This is what the way you do it. And I, I think you've got the reference, Psalm 111, verse 10 says, how can a, a person be made wise? The only way to begin is by reverence for God. And then it says this, for growth in wisdom comes from obeying his laws. You want to grow, you obey his law. You obey his word, and you will grow more. You open God's word with respect and with reverence, and you'll have true wisdom. And is that the attitude with which you approach the word? Are you listening to the word? You know, there's a, a, one of my college professors uh, wrote a book. Uh, the book is called Written in Blood. And his name is Robert Coleman. He tells the story of a little boy whose sister um, had this, needed a blood transfusion. And the doctor had explained that, that uh, the boy had the same disease and, and he had recovered a couple years before. And her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered this disease. And so since the two children had the same rare blood type, the ideal donor was the brother, the little boy. And so the doctor says, would you give your blood to your sister? And the little boy kind of hesitates and he bites his lower lip and he trembles and he finally he gets this little smile. He says, sure, I'll do this for my sister. And they're wheeled into this room and they're attached and the little boy sees his blood start flowing out of his body. Finally, he, he gets this little grin. And, but when the blood starts flowing, he, he starts getting tears in his eyes and, and, and his smile fades away and the ordeal's almost over and the little boy looks up at the doctor and he says, so when do I die? That's what he thought it meant to give all of his blood to his sister or to give some of his blood to his sisters that he would die. And each of us has a condition far worse than this little boy's sister. And it required Jesus not just to give his blood, but to give his life for us, for you. And Revelation has a, a, a word for the first century church. And it has a word for us, and that is to keep looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need to keep looking to you. We want to have this message of revelation, these first chapters especially, burnt into our hearts to gaze on the exalted and glorified Christ. So Father, we thank you for these truths that we have here. Thank you for being in the furnace with us. Thank you for strengthening us and, and helping us and standing with us and upholding us with your righteous, omnipotent hand. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to grasp these truths and, and to live out this life with your presence, conscious of that, conscious of, of your love for us. We know that you will come back. We thank you that you are with us in the furnace of our affliction. Help us apply these things by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll end with these words from the end of Revelation. He who has said all these things declares, yes, I am coming soon. Amen.
Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.